0: this case, I put it in one of my books back in 2015, because it was the strangest case I think I'd ever heard of, and it's so mysterious. In 2008, an astonishing incident was captured live on CCTV and by a film crew of the BBC, who happened to be there at the time, filming a documentary about the British motorway police. Two women are observed on the live screens at the M6 motorway traffic control room in a rural part of northern England near Stoke-on-Trent. The two women are walking along the central reservation of the motorway. Seeing this on their screens, the control room officers dispatch highway patrol officers to the scene immediately to stop the women. What they were doing was completely illegal, but more importantly, it was highly dangerous. And in fact, a very illogical place. To be walking there. Well. As the patrol car approaches the two women. Back at the control room. Watching the live feeds. It shows. That both women. Climb over. The short barriers. Of the central reservation. And start running. Straight. Into the path. Of the fast flowing traffic on the motorway. One of them is hit by a car in the fast lane but inexplicably, despite having just been hit head-on by the car, she immediately gets straight back up and continues on to the other side of the road. She seems to be Completely impervious and oblivious to any pain. Yet she's just been hit head on. Well immediately the control room call the motorway police to go to the scene and the BBC film crew go in the car with the two police officers. So they're filming their arrival which is just moments away. And they're all expecting to find the woman who was hit by the speeding car, very, very seriously injured and in need of urgent medical treatment. But as they pull up and get out of the police car, the two women suddenly seem to notice the police and they become highly agitated. As the police approach them and start to question the two ladies on the roadside, the BBC cameras capture the next astonishing moment that one of the women sidesteps the police and runs Straight into the oncoming traffic again, followed quickly after by her sister, who does exactly the same thing. One of them is hit by a car and sent flying over its roof. The other is hit head-on by a lorry, an articulated lorry. And this highly disturbing scene is captured by the cameras. Well, the police immediately called for an ambulance, stating to the emergency services over their walkie-talkie that it's probably going to be two fatalities. After all, the women were both hit at full impact by the speeding vehicles on the highway motorway. The woman hit by the car was estimated to be going at a speed of at least 60 miles an hour. She is lying unconscious in the middle of the traffic lane, and the woman hit by the lorry has broken bones that are visibly sticking out of her legs. As if this is not strange enough, as the police go to their aid, She's heard saying, I know you are not real. Then she starts becoming aggressive. And even though her legs are completely busted, with the bones coming out of them, she becomes increasingly violent. Well, one of the police attending the scene that day, Paul Finlayson, Made the comment, I can't understand it. For a person to survive being hit by a lorry is very, very rare. Seeing her thrown violently, seeing her run over by the wheels, no human was going to survive that. Another police officer at the scene. P.C. Cope said What I couldn't understand is that I've got a person who is smashed from the waist down but from the waist up is extremely aggressive. She's spitting, shouting and screaming. You start to wonder what's going on here? It was very, very strange. The woman hit by the car suddenly regains consciousness. Seems to be in no pain at all. Stands up and punches a policewoman in the face, knocking her to the floor. The policewoman is visibly credulous afterward she says to the bbc film crew on camera i can't understand what's going on i saw the car hit her it threw her in the air like a doll the woman runs and climbs over the central reservation's barrier and again runs into the oncoming traffic on the other side of the motorway this time she's not run over but is trying to flee into the woods that run parallel to the road. She seems to have no fear, and more strangely, no injuries at all. It takes six police, as well as concerned members of the public, who have got out of their cars to help, to restrain her. And she's threatening violence to them all policeman says her strength was phenomenal. It's inexplicable. Both of them appeared to demonstrate such intense focus. They just wanted to fight us. Why were they on the motorway? Why did they want to fight us? Why were they trying to commit suicide? The policeman is simply stunned by their behavior. Both of the women appeared to be absolutely terrified of the police. Irrationally so, as the police were simply trying to calm them down and prevent them from hurting themselves. And the police kept saying to them, We're here to help you. But the women's responses included screaming the most bizarre things. They were shouting, You are not the police. They were asking each other, What country do they come from? And they were screaming, You are not real. You cannot protect us. One sister screamed to the other one, They want our body parts. Both women are eventually restrained and subdued and taken to hospital, but the woman hit by the car is released quickly and taken to the police station, where she is charged with trespass and assaulting a police officer. What no one there could understand, however, was why she seemed not to be physically injured in any way. She had been thrown over the roof of a speeding car, and yet she was physically fine. The police also found it strange that all the time she was at the police station, she never once asked about the health of her sister, who'd been rushed to hospital. In fact, the police said that her entire demeanour had suddenly changed. To one of friendliness, in fact, almost flirtatiousness. You could suppose that perhaps she was given some tranquilizing medication at the hospital to calm her down. And yet, interestingly, the police found no evidence in her medical records that she wasn't given anything at the hospital. And interestingly, The police found no evidence in her medical records of any sign of mental illness. Nor did they find any drugs in her system. Now you can actually see footage of this incident on the internet still. And of course the speculation would naturally be that They must have taken a really strong drug, I don't know, like bath salts or some kind of hallucinogenic or something, but no drugs were found in either of the women's systems. Not even steroids or anything like that. And certainly no traces of any mind-altering or mood-changing drugs at all. The two women turned out to be identical twins of Swedish nationality who, strangely, apparently only had one passport between them. Well, it transpired that the two women, the two sisters, had been travelling by coach. The coach had stopped. At a service station. For a break for everybody. To go and have refreshments. And when everybody had gathered back at the coach. The two women were refused readmittance back onto the coach. Apparently what had happened. Was that the male coach driver. Believed that he had seen them acting. In his words very suspiciously and as a result of this he felt that he should inform the manager at the service way station which he did. The female manager of the motorway service station then kept an eye herself on these two women and watched them and she felt that there was a possibility they were plotting something. She said that they were carrying their bags of luggage very close to them and conferring with each other. And in her words, she thought it looked almost as though they were plotting something. The manager of the service station became very concerned That there could be a bomb in their bags. As a result of this belief, she herself called the police, and the police arrived. The police spoke to the two sisters, but they couldn't find anything of concern themselves, however, and simply let the women go. But of course, when they went to get back onto the coach, the sisters found that they'd now been barred from getting back on. This seemed to be the reason why, perhaps then, that they'd set off on foot, but quite why they were walking down the central reservation of an extremely fast-moving motorway doesn't really make sense. We'll fast forward to the police station, where one of the sisters has been taken to be charged for assaulting a police officer. And the BBC cameras are still rolling at this point. And her demeanour has entirely changed from wanting to fight everybody and screaming that they're trying to take her body parts to behaving as if she's having a nice day out or as though she had no recollection of what had transpired. You can honestly say that that person, that screaming banshee of a woman, is not the person that we picked up from the hospital. She's not exhibited any aggression. I was quite happy that she could be conveyed in the police car without being handcuffed which seems a remarkable turnaround. But he continues. It was the little things that bothered her, like what she looks like and what she's going to wear. She's not asked about her sister once, and that surprised me from start to finish dealing with her. It's as if her sister doesn't exist any more. I don't think she knew anything that had gone on. She then didn't care or she didn't remember. She was almost jolly, even flirtatious. With her it clearly worked to be pleasant to her, to flirt with her, the custody sergeant noted, which is a bizarre thing for a policeman to say. But it seems she had almost charmed him. As the sister is being charged with the assault on the policeman on camera, she said, remarking that in her native country, she says, we say an accident rarely comes alone. Usually, at least one more will follow. Why would she make this statement? Well, in hindsight, It seems that she was possibly sending a message about what her next intentions were, but no one took any notice of the comment. When the story hit all the national newspapers, shortly after the next set of events transpired, no one could understand how it was that she was not only physically unharmed and seemed impervious to pain, but that she was then released from police custody after only a few hours. She'd endangered her own life several times, as well as the lives of others. Was she mentally fit to be out in general population? Well what followed next? was another highly mysterious chain of events. She had been released from the police station early the next day, and she'd found her way into the small rural town closest to the police station, and she was sighted by two men in the early summer evening, standing in the middle of the road as they were walking along it. They had just left their local pub, where they frequently went in the evenings for a beer and a chat. As the two men left the pub and entered the street, they couldn't help but fail to notice her standing in the middle of the road, And she called over to them, telling them how nice the dog was that they had with them. The two men strolled over to her, so she could make a fuss of the dog, and they got into a conversation. And she explained that she was looking for her sister, who was in hospital, but also looking. For a bed and breakfast hotel where she could stay the night. One of the men, Glen Hollinshead, pointed out to her that the small village they were in didn't really have any bed and breakfast in it, but he suggested that she could go back with them to his house and he would all make them a bite to eat and then help her find her sister and a place to stay the night. His friend Pete, who was with him, talking about that evening, said, we'd often sit in the pub and talk about his days in the Royal Air Force and other chat. As we left the pub and started to walk home. You couldn't miss her. She stuck out with the big coat she was wearing and carrying all her possessions in a big transparent bag. She seemed lost, unfocused. Part of me was thinking, something's not right here. Why has she got all her possessions with her? But Glen was being a good Samaritan. He was just trying to help her. Her personality opened up as we walked along. And she was really friendly. Back at Glenn's house, we were just having beers and... I asked her what happened to her sister. And she went cold. And changed. In the quiet moments between conversation, she kept getting paranoid and getting up and looking through the curtains out into the street. She got her cigarettes out and offered them to us, and we took one each, but just as we were about to light them, she snatched them back and said, we couldn't have them because they might be poisoned. I thought, is she hiding from someone? Glenn was more relaxed about the whole thing, though. And in fact, it would just transpire that he just thought that just perhaps she was a bit introverted. Well, his friend left and... Glenn let her stay the night there at his house. The following day she stabbed him to death. He managed to make it out at the front door and tell his neighbour that she had stabbed him, but tragically he died shortly after. She fled the scene immediately. A British Army soldier called Josh Grattage was driving along in a street nearby when he saw a woman walking along the pavement, smashing a hammer into her own head. He said, I was seeing lots of blood on her head. I felt a sickening feeling. He slammed on his car brakes and rushed out over to her to stop her hitting herself any more on the head with the hammer, only for her to pull part of a brick out of her pocket and hit him over the head with it, momentarily stunning him, and she ran off. She was finally spotted again, and the police chased her on foot, as she headed towards a bridge, with no hesitation, she jumped straight off the bridge and fractured her skull and ankles. She was, of course, apprehended, and she was jailed for the killing of Glenn in 2010. Her name was Sabina Erickson. And, very strangely, within just over a year, she was released from prison. Now, the UK penal system is actually a lot more lenient than, perhaps, let's say the United States or, well, Saudi Arabia or somewhere, but it still seems an incredibly light sentence. Not only this, but with the extreme propensity that she had to self-harm. It's absolutely astounding that she wasn't sentenced to, rather than a prison, a mental institution instead. Well, I read all of the documents about the court case, and it seems that two psychiatrists deemed her to have experienced a sudden, but brief, and temporary, outburst of madness. One of the judges in the case said, the mental illness resolved itself quickly, it had a sudden onset and resolved rapidly. Well, if this was indeed the case, how do they know? that this sudden outburst of madness would not resurface again in the future? How could they know that it would just be a one-off? And besides which, there's also no evidence in their medical records of any existing incidents of madness or mental instability. It seems a remarkable thing that somebody could suddenly just go mad, and then stop being mad shortly after. Even more puzzling, of course, is the fact that her sister went mad at exactly the same time, also, and presumably stopped being mad just as quickly afterwards. Well, what are we to make of this? There are some strange, interesting thoughts on this case. And When it was put onto YouTube, it's had hundreds of thousands of people look at it and of course comment and I think everybody was baffled by it. One of the strangest parts, of course, is the fact that they seemed both to be unable to feel pain. Their demonstration also of extreme strength, such that... They seemed to be able to take on all of the police. Be hit by cars. And feel absolutely nothing. Well, some people have said maybe that means that they were under the control of a demon. Maybe they were both possessed. Both of them possessed? At the same time? It is said that victims of demonic possession are driven on by... This voice inside of them that insistently tells them to hurt themselves. Is this why they repeatedly threw themselves in front of speeding cars and why Sabrina was hitting her own head with a hammer? Were are they hearing voices of disembodied evil spirits, both of them at the same time, urging them to kill themselves. And yet, really, if they'd shown no evidence of any instability prior to their coach journey, how could they suddenly become totally possessed? And then, the demon just left them and they were no longer possessed. Is it really plausible? And yet, some of the other theories are just as hard to take as well. There's one veteran conspiracy type theorist or researcher called Miles Johnson, who runs a project called the Basis Project, who made his opinions about the case very clear. And he said, their behaviour was self-terminate. Do not get captured. He, along with others, point to their behaviour. The reason why they were self-terminating by running head-on into fast-moving lorries and cars and hammering their own heads was because there was a voice in their head But it wasn't a demon. Researchers such as Johnson believe that they had been programmed to self-destruct. That voices were put into their head, but not by a demon. They have been underground, says Johnston. And he points to their shouting. They want to take our body parts as proof of this. He has spent over two decades interviewing witnesses of secret government military underground bases and he and his followers believe there is a lot more to this story than has been covered or publicly released. They believe the women were part of a growing number of mylabs. Military abductees taken to underground bases and kept there for experimentation, abducted in the dead of night by military contractors and smuggled into underground secret bases. They had escaped this base. Well. It is strange that they were terrified of the police, and yet they had no criminal record. They had no known reason to be running. They had no drugs in their bags. No illicit behavior was going on. So they weren't under risk of being arrested for anything other than harming themselves. And yet, They said to the police, who they seemed to be terrified of, you cannot protect us. They were scared and they were running. But from what or whom were they running? Johnson says that these particular women could have been genetically experimented on. Their DNA altered, while kept in these underground bases and their bodies modified and enhanced with the use of advanced technology. What would be the purpose of this? Well, apparently, to create programmed assassins who feel no pain and are, as such, rechargeable. Almost like the Terminator when he recharges himself and gets back up. So had they escaped then from this underground base, wherever it is, and they were on the run and they were terrified of the police because the police represented capture. And these were programmed assassins who were incapable of being hurt. Well, they did get hurt though, but feel no pain and to carry on regardless of injury. But why were they trying to kill themselves? Was it because they had suffered so much in one of these bases that death was preferable to recapture? Or, as part of their programming, not only was their DNA genetically modified, but their mind had been broken and reprogrammed so that they would respond to any instructions. They could go on killing missions. Without any thought or conscience. And when their puppet masters wanted them out of the picture, they could just be triggered with certain words to kill themselves when they had served their usefulness. It's kind of like the Montauk project, where the suggestion was. The children were abducted and taken underground, and mind controlled by the most cruel methods to fracture their personalities and give them new ones. To hypnotise them, to respond to certain trigger words. I mean it would be great to have trained assassins who would feel no pain. And you could say a certain word, and they would just go off and kill someone. Well, is this at all plausible? And yet, why were they acting like that? Why were they saying you want our body parts? Why were they saying you cannot protect us? There have been whistleblowers who have purported to be victims of underground mind programming and mind control. Through the use of deprivation and abuse techniques to split the mind by trauma into any number of split personalities, like monarch or mannequin. Perhaps there is some evidence here from the apparent ability of Sabina to go, from suicidal self-destruct mode on the motorway, to flirtatious charmer in the police station, where she seemingly captivated the custody sergeant, and his colleagues. And then she is paranoidly saying to the two men in their flat that the cigarettes might be poisoned, and then the next morning she turns into murderess. This sounds like mental illness. This sounds like psychosis. And yet, apparently it was a very rare one. Her sister shared exactly at the same time with her. How reliable is the psychiatric diagnosis then? So, were they mad? Or were they super soldiers created in labs through genetic interference? The biggest problem here with the idea that these women were held, abducted, mind controlled, and genetically enhanced is that. Well, the other sister did have to spend three months in hospital due to her injuries. So, surely, they can't be superhuman. On the other hand, that doesn't mean that they couldn't have been mind-controlled and programmed. If such thing really does happen. But if so, what was their mission? Well, as an addendum during my research into this case i came across a journalist called david mccann who at the time of the incident spent a lot of time looking into the case and he believes that the sister sabina did not carry out the murder he says other people did it they entered the house and took advantage of her mental illness and used it as a front to commit the murder and blame it on her I don't follow that logic. But what I did find very strange was that he wrote a book on this case and that was his theory that drug dealers had used her as a cover, broken in and killed this man, Glenn. But I couldn't find any evidence for it in his book. But I was looking into him and I found it really strange that prior to this case and writing about it himself, he had spent a lot of time. Posting all over the internet under numerous names, he says, speaking out about the existence of super soldiers, publishing information about super soldiers. So he was really saying super soldiers really exist. Then this case came along and he completely changed his mind and said, No, they don't exist anymore. And that these women had nothing to do with supposed super soldiers. Well, that's really strange, isn't it? I mean, what are the odds that somebody promoting super soldiers would then write about this case and say, No, they don't exist anymore. It's so strange. Why were they screaming that the police can't protect them? And they were saying that they were going to steal their body parts.